Is your career not quite moving in the direction you want it to? That's because building the career you want is no longer about climbing the ladder of success. Technology and the speed of information have made advancing in your career more like climbing a rock wall. Thankfully, you found the Career Progressions Podcast brought to you by RevealedTalent.com. I'm your career advocate, Mark Holman. Our podcast focuses on the stories of career pros and experts who have climbed before you. What they will share with you will help you find the climbing holes they use to get to where they are today. Their stories will help you be proactive, be intentional, and keep moving forward. Well, the other day I was surfing my feed on LinkedIn and I came across an article about how to stand out on LinkedIn. It was shared by the host of Recruiting in Yoga Pants, Amy Miller. She said at the time it felt like it was one of the most astute articles she's ever read on the subject. And you know what? I tend to agree with her. It was written by a gentleman named James Hudson, who's a rapidly up-and-coming voice in recruiting and job-seeking. So he's becoming a very good thought leader in that area. And he's been doing a lot of wonderful things on social media, and he's a weekly columnist for Forbes magazine. If you've never engaged with this content before, let me just encourage you to take the time to go out and follow him, at least on LinkedIn. Of course, in the show notes, I'll make sure that we share his information so you'll know how to find him. So I'm honored to share that he's agreed to set aside some time to join us today and dig a little deeper into some of the advice he offered in that article and share some other nuggets from his blog. So let me take a second to welcome James Hudson. Hey, James, how are you doing? I'm, I'm really good. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a, it's a privilege to be here. It's great to have you. And I tell you, congratulations. I mean, for, you know, the topic of the article is learning how to stand out on LinkedIn. You were certainly starting to set yourself apart and really get a following there. So congrats on that. Thanks. It's all kind of happened really quite quickly over the last six months since I started being more active on the platform from a posting perspective. Obviously, I've been on LinkedIn for nearly two decades as a recruiter, but my use of that platform has changed over time. And then very recently, as I started becoming a quote unquote content creator, it, mm. yeah, my following increased really quickly, really, really quickly, surprisingly. Well, I'm excited to hear more because I think a lot of what you're going to talk about in the article is going to relate so much to what you did to really begin getting noticed. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. But one of the things you just said is really where I'd like to dive into this. You were talking about how LinkedIn has changed and how you've used it, you've changed. So I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, over the course of like the last 20 years, LinkedIn has evolved a lot. How has that evolved in a way that uh, has influenced the ways professionals need to interact with it now? Yeah, it's a really good place to start. And I don't think I'm overstating it when I say that LinkedIn has completely revolutionized the talent marketplace. Agreed. Certainly how we as corporate recruiters operate, it has been a complete game changer. And it's really interesting how the platform has evolved over the last 20 years. I mean, obviously it, it started as pretty much a a static site and 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 basically a directory of um uh folks's 
online resumes. But as the site has evolved and the tools that we have as recruiters and, you know, a whole range of other professionals now have services that LinkedIn offers them mm. um, and how people use the site. It's, it's really interesting to see that evolution. LinkedIn just crossed a huge milestone a couple of months ago. There are now more than a billion members on LinkedIn worldwide. Mm. And obviously the, there is an increasing focus on the newsfeed and the content that people are creating and sharing. And then that in turn uh, affects how people use the site. You know, pre-pandemic, before the news feed was such a focus, the average recency on LinkedIn was 30 days. The average user would only go to the site once a month. And now it's become a site that people visit daily in the same way that they would visit other social media platforms. So it's, it's really interesting to have seen that evolution over the last 20 years. Well, and, and I know you've been a part of LinkedIn from the recruiting standpoint for a while. And so you, when you mentioned this idea of visiting LinkedIn daily, there's a difference between how users visit LinkedIn daily and how a recruiter visits it daily. Can you talk a little bit about what does the day-to-day -day look like from a, a recruiter out on LinkedIn? Sure. Recruiters have, a, have access to a whole separate version right. of LinkedIn. It's literally called LinkedIn Recruiter. It's also eye-wateringly expensive uh, because it's it the most powerful. <laughs> it is. Uh, I don't think LinkedIn will mind me saying that. Yeah, uh, uh, they know. Because it's the most powerful tool uh, that we have as recruiters because it basically allows us to reach every single LinkedIn user on the platform. Right. And it's... You know, for, for most parts of the enterprise, it's the most reliable source of talent. There are still certain subsets of the enterprise, uh, specifically more creative type roles um, that aren't as well represented on LinkedIn, though that is also changing. Uh, but for most roles, if, if we want to hire somebody, if we want to find the best talent out there, they will be on LinkedIn and LinkedIn Recruiter allows us to connect with them. So. Whilst the average user um, has only recently started using LinkedIn on a daily basis, recruiters have been using LinkedIn on a daily basis since the birth of the LinkedIn recruiter tool. Right. You know, the average recruiter, I would estimate, is spending probably four hours a day in LinkedIn recruiter looking for talent. Right. And, you know, this is uh, something a lot of people have heard of, but maybe you can expand on it more, this whole idea of a Boolean search. So I know that's one of the powerful ways a recruiter can use LinkedIn is doing very unique searches in the platform. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. Without getting deeply technical, when you as a regular user of LinkedIn, search LinkedIn, LinkedIn will surface to you your first, second, and degree and third degree connections right when as a recruiter i go into linkedin recruiter and search i can literally see every single person that has a linkedin profile the whole billion um and so linkedin has a really sophisticated interface that helps us as recruiters narrow down and laser in on specific talent so for example, if I was to just search data scientist San Francisco, 
Mm -hmm. I would find thousands of profiles that that match that thousands of data scientists in san francisco right. but then there are a range of tools and algorithms working in the background of the platform that help me as a recruiter refine my search to find the subset of data scientists that are going to be the best fit for what i'm looking for for the open role that i have so the i mean the thing i take away from that is words matter right because linkedin gives you the opportunity to search on a lot of those words and use that algorithm to to narrow down that amount to a you know a, a manageable amount so if i'm a user of the platform boy the the words i'm putting in my profile make a big difference don't they james not so much the words that you're putting in the profile but how you are populating your profile and so that was one of the things I was trying to uncover in the article that went viral is mm -hmm. if you think about if, how a recruiter is using LinkedIn, then crafting your profile in that way, therefore makes you more discoverable to the people that are trying to find you. And so understanding that location is key because, well, less so in a post-pandemic world where roles are hybrid and remote, mm -hmm. but one one of the factors that recruiters usually start their search on is the lo the location that you're working in the job title that you have the company that you work at but then it's what you're doing on the platform to help the algorithm help us that's really transformational so going back to the data scientist example if if i search data scientist san francisco the first cut will give me for example 5000 data scientists but then the algorithm will show me as a recruiter, a subset of data scientists. Um, the, the first cut is engaged with your talent brand. Mm. So what that means is if I'm a recruiter at Apple, right. And someone has followed the Apple company page or ever applied to a job at Apple, uh -huh. then they will fall into that, that smaller subset of data scientist candidates that I know as a recruiter at Apple, that of those 5,000 uh, data scientists, a thousand of them, for example, might be engaged with the Apple talent brand. So uh, I might want to start there because that's, that's a warmer lead than just a data scientist that has not expressed an interest in the Apple brand. Right. Because you at least know that they're, yeah, they're on your radar, right? Right. And then a further subset of uh, the algorithm shows us is uh, a subset of candidates that are more likely to respond. Okay. And that's really crucial because the, the, the stats show across LinkedIn as a whole, when recruiters send out outreach to candidates, they're called in-mails, the average response rate is just 30%. So hmm. for every 10 in-mails that a recruiter sends, seven go unanswered. Right. And so LinkedIn shows us, or the algorithm shows us, uh, which candidates are more likely to respond based on their LinkedIn activity. And so that's why understanding how the algorithm works as a regular user can be really, really powerful in helping you get discovered by, by the recruiters that you want to find you. So here's a couple of tips I'm hearing right off the bat. Well, one, if you've got companies you're interested in, you need to be following them. 
uh, and you need to be applying because those things, even though you may not get noticed initially, if they have a job down the line, that might point them to you, right? And, and then the other thing seems to be, all right, if if a recruiter reaches out to you, even if you're not interested, would would a simple no thank you still help that algorithm? Well, there's a, there's a few different things there. Uh, yes, if if a recruiter reaches out to you and you're not interested, mm -hmm. you should absolutely uh, respond because you're potentially building a, a relationship and a connection for the future you you might be happy where you are right now but you you know in the increasingly volatile job market right. you don't know if that will be the the case in a year or two years time so a why not forge a relationship with that recruiter because recruiters also change jobs and you never know where they might be working next and they might end up at your dream company True. so yes respond because it puts you in that 70th percentile right mm -hmm. um uh, which is a place that you that you might not want to be right now, but you may want to be in the future. Uh, but also in a market like this, even if you're not looking, you almost certainly know someone that is. So mm. make that connection for them. Right. Put good energy into the universe. No, I love that. Pay it forward. I mean, uh, you know, and that's as a recruiter and I've supported a lot of the recruiting efforts uh, with our company. You know, we always ask folks who can who can you recommend, uh, and when you're able to provide recommendations, that's not only very helpful to a uh, a recruiter, but like you said, James, I think it just is a great way to pay things forward for the people you know in your life. Let's stay on the algorithm thing because I think there's a lot that our audience can learn from understanding more about LinkedIn's algorithm. What are some other things that make that work for or against a job seeker from your experience, James? So again, it comes back to how recruiters use the platform. Even five years ago, recruiter searches all started the same way, either using company job title or keywords so we might be looking for data scientists and data engineers that work at apple google amazon meta for example mm -hmm. and our keywords might be data warehouse or python or sql and that's how the that's how all recruiter searches started and then as those searches get more complex, that's where the term Boolean searching comes mm. in. It's just stringing together search terms to get a, a more refined outcome. Now, the way that recruiters using the platform has shifted, and whilst 60% of all recruiter searches still start that way, so job title, company, keyword, 40% of recruiter searches now start with skills. Uh -huh. And that's one of the most under, underutilized areas when folks are populating their profile is that they omit to use the skills functionality. Yeah. LinkedIn allows you to use up to 50 skills. And so for most people, I advise pick the top four or five skills for every job role that you've had and make sure you're tagging the skills against each of those career entries on your LinkedIn, just so that it makes you more discoverable. You still want to be discoverable based on 
your job title, the companies you've worked at, and the things that you did that will yeah. that will surface you in a traditional keyword search. But you also want to make sure that you're being surfaced in those skills-based searches because increasingly that's how recruiters are, are starting the discovery process in LinkedIn Recruiter. So if you're not using the skills functionality, you're in, invisible to that subset of searches. Yep. And, and what you're trying to do, obviously, is optimize your visibility to be the, the most visible you can be to the people that you want to find you. Yeah. And so this gets to the point I was making earlier about words mattering You know, the kind of skills that you have on your LinkedIn are pretty critical. And it's not just the skill section, but your about section, your banner. I know those are all very searchable areas by recruiters in LinkedIn. So if you've got the right kinds of skills listed there, it can be a beacon to drawing recruiters to you. So one of the piece of advice I've shared with folks in the past, I'm curious about your take on it and how you know you talk to folks about it is you know, if you're in the job market and you're looking for a particular kind of job, go out and LinkedIn and look at a bunch of job descriptions about that role and look at the skills that show up again and again and again. And if that's a skill you have, my goodness, that needs to be in your LinkedIn profile. Do you agree, James? Yes. And some of the skills is just about thinking laterally, like you, you know, the things that you uh, that you do in your in your day to day work, but it just might not occur to you to call that out as a skill. And with the increasing um, AI functionality that a LinkedIn that LinkedIn are building into the platform, as you go in to update your profile, the AI prompt is getting better and better at nudging you to enter skills that it think you should that LinkedIn thinks you should have. Oh. based on the job title that you have so uh it, it is getting easier to have for the average user for the average user to to find the right skills that are going to help them be the most discoverable that's really interesting feedback because you know i see that ai thing out there and maybe don't make as good a use of as i should so some of this advice that you're getting from this little ai bot that that shows up in different places it's probably not a bad idea to incorporate some of that advice that's what you're saying I'm saying LinkedIn has already done the heavy lift for you. It's already yeah. there. Yeah, well, that makes good sense. So, you know, as we're talking about this stuff with the algorithm and things, you know, you mentioned there are a lot of new people on LinkedIn. And as new people, they're probably making some mistakes about how they're setting it up that might be turning some recruiters off. But what do you think are the top three mistakes that people make? Sure. Um, and I think it's probably helpful to rather than framing it as mistakes, framing yeah. it as not fully optimizing their gotcha. presence on LinkedIn, uh, because there's not necessarily any one right way to do it, but there are certainly best practices um, that folks can follow. And I always come back to what is your end goal and what is your objective? And really your objective is that you're trying to broaden your digital footprint online, both with other folks in your industry, other peers and professionals in your space, and also with recruiters that you might want to find you immediately for opportunities or for opportunities in the future. And so I think the, the, the foundational mistake that, that folks sometimes make is to not fully populate their profile. 
And so that comes down to even the really basic stuff of, you know, a full his, a full career history of the the places that you've worked and the roles that you've held, but also short descriptions of what you did in each of those jobs. Obviously, LinkedIn is public facing, so you um, you you obviously can't share uh, uh, material non public information, but you can still right. give generic overviews of to to give a sense of the size and scope of roles that you held. Um, so at a minimum, you want to be putting in a detailed career history because that helps with your discoverability from the the keyword and job title searches. But again, using the skills functionality also then helps you become more discoverable. So a well-populated profile is foundational. And then, then I think that the next opportunity that folks miss on is being overwhelmed with the thought of creating content on yeah. LinkedIn. And I agree that that can be scary at first, but you do not need to create content to be active on LinkedIn. Uh, you can start just by following companies that you're interested in and following people at those companies mm. or people in your industry that are active on the platform and reacting to content that is already there. You can start just with, you know, the the likes and the reshares and then you and then your next stage of evolution can be commenting and then once you've got confident with liking and resharing and commenting, that's then your your springboard to starting to to write your own content and starting to have your own point of view. Um but you don't have to go all in and start with content. You can start just by reacting to content that's already there. And I'm glad we've gotten to this space because I think there are a lot of people that are intimidated by that. But I also know there is a tremendous amount of value in in doing that content. I mean, personally, you know, I've I've been in the content game in LinkedIn. And one of the things that's tough about it is, is when you start, you know, you don't get a lot of likes. You may not get any likes. And then you start putting on another and another and another. And you're not seeing that. And you begin feeling this sense of, well, geez. I mean, am I just wasting my time? But now, I mean, you, James, I mean, you've, I'm sure, been through your share of that, but you've you found something that really very quickly got you in notice much, much faster. What are some of the things you'd recommend that maybe led to the kind of thing uh, that that got, got you followed pretty well? Yes. Um, yeah, I was fortunate that I found a niche that that did get a lot of traction very quickly. Um, but my, my first post, my first month or two of posting, it, it did feel like a thankless task. Yeah. And I think there's a few things you, um, have to bear in mind when you start your content creation journey is that it's definitely a marathon. It's not a sprint. And like with any endurance activity, it's all about building resilience. You mm. have to keep going. It's definitely, there's no, you know, overnight going viral. That just doesn't happen. Yeah. And even the people that do go viral, and, you know, I've been fortunate to go viral a few times now, <laughs> that's, that's off the back of months and months of consistency. Right. And, you know, there's, 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 there's obviously some strange dark magic in, in what makes something go viral, and I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is... Uh, that it doesn't just happen from somebody making their first ever post. That's right. it. You have to have build the muscle and get used to posting regularly. Um, 
because what you will learn is what your audience wants to see more of. And mm. my frame of reference um, has always been from the from the BBC, from the from the British Broadcasting Corporation's original mandate from a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, does it educate people? Does it inform people? Or does it entertain people? And that's really what you're trying to do. And I decided that that my niche was going to be informing and educating folks specifically around how to navigate the post-pandemic job market. LinkedIn will tell you that the best performing content uh, answers two questions. Why me and why now? So why are you saying what you're saying? Why why do you have the authority to say it? Mm. And why is it important that you say it now? And those pieces, those pieces of content are the ones that cut through the noise, according to LinkedIn. And that has been my own experience, too. There's, there's a lot of misinformation that circles on LinkedIn, especially around how to get jobs, how to get hired, how the hiring process works. Mm-hmm. I am fortunate that after spending 20 years of leading recruiting teams at you know, some of the world's most beloved brands, I do, I do come at this from a position of authority. Uh, and so when I explain how the hiring process works, uh, the algorithm, LinkedIn's algorithm does give me, does give my content um, more visibility because it's, it, it know, LinkedIn knows that I'm an authority on the subject and yeah. I am writing about something I have authority on. And so when I write about my personal interests, you know, fashion or jewelry or the 90s or art or travel, mm-hmm. I don't get very much reach at all. But when I write about careers and leadership and hiring, I get tremendous reach because LinkedIn knows that I'm an expert on that thing. And so you have to decide what you want your niche to be. But if if you want to reach more people, you should absolutely write about something that LinkedIn considers you an expert on. And and LinkedIn considers you an expert on what your career is. So, James, I mean, when you first had the experience of going viral, and I'm assuming that was in one of those career posts, just like you're describing Mm now, what was the what was the first post that that went wild for you? I'm trying to think back, and it depends what you mean. It depends how you how you quantify viral. Um, my top performing post has more than a million views. And then there are five or six that all have more than 200,000. And so all of them, all of the most viewed posts are somehow connected to part of the hiring journey. So either do these three things before your interview or how to get noticed by recruiters on LinkedIn or why recruiters won't give you feedback. So I I think about the hiring journey from my professional Mm -hmm. viewpoint, and then I write about key moments in the hiring journey to explain it to people that, to to non-recruiters. And it's it's all of the posts about different parts of the hiring journey that have had massive reach. Yeah. Well, so you're putting out the great content in those areas, and you mentioned a little while ago, you know, you've got to stay consistent. What is the cadence? need to look like i mean how often would you recommend you know let's start with a job seeker just somebody who's trying to get noticed how often should they be posting i don't think there is any one right 
answer to this. The received wisdom mm -hmm. seems to be two to three times a week. Okay. I post five times a week, every single day. Um, okay. But that's because I actually enjoy the creative process. And because I'm not working right now, I have the bandwidth to do it. But posting five times a week is a heavy lift. And I don't think most yeah. people would be able to keep up with that. But I think more than frequency, it's consistency that feeds the algorithm. So I think even if you commit to Tuesday and Thursday every week, two posts a week, I think two posts as you're getting started is achievable and it's sticking to that cadence, making sure that you're, you're posting twice a week every week rather than, you know, twice one week and three times the next and four times. If I believe, and I don't have data on this, but I believe that it is consistency that is more important than frequency. Makes sense. Well, and in type of posting, let's let's get to that because you know I've seen articles. It wasn't that long ago that when you do put a poll out there, boy, those got nice hits, and so it's saying, well, hey, you should put out more polls. And then I've heard, you know, video content, you get rewarded for doing that, but I'm not sure that's the case anymore. Does does it matter in your experience the type of post you put out there? There is again, there is a lot of. Um, rumor that swirls around the reach for various post types, whether it's carousel, text-based, photo or video. I will say from my own experience that image-based posts get more engagement, so likes, comments, reshares, but text-based posts get more reach, mm. so impressions. And so I don't know if that's just my experience or if that's true across the whole platform, but it, again, it depends what you're doing it for. Um, I like to use images just because it's part of the creative process for me, but again, sure. that might be hard for, for folks. And so I don't want to create unrealistic expectations. But again, from my own observation, simple text-based posts get the most reach, not the most engagement, but the most reach. More people see them. Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's some food for thought. I mean, you know, for those of you who are draw, uh, job seekers out there, you know, it's bigger than just what you're putting on your, your page. I mean, the way you interact makes you findable and that's what you want to be when you're looking for work. First and foremost, um, you want to be found, right? And then, you know, of course you can do it the other way. Let's shift back to the profile real quick, because I want to get to a topic that's actually been a little controversial and some people have some very, very big opinions about it. So if I'm looking for work, there's this issue of that little green banner that goes on my picture. I've been around experts who say you don't want to use that. It's like a, a scarlet letter. It, it recruiters tend to maybe get turned off by that because they're looking more for passive talent. Uh, and then there are others who say you absolutely should use it. And I've seen some good statistics about, you know, your findability goes up uh, X percentage whenever you have that. Personally, where do you fall on that, James? This whole conversation infuriates me because <laughs> it, is, it has been driven by non-recruiters mm. creating clickbaity articles for that to drive their own engagement mm. and so i'm not even just going to talk about my own opinion as a recruiting leader i am going to quote direct data from the linkedin 
product managers that built the feature. There are actually two open to work features that people can use. Right. You can you can notify recruiters behind the scenes that you're open to work. And when you do that, it is only visible to recruiters. A blue box appears on your profile that is only visible to recruiters and not to recruiters at your own company. I was going to ask because um, I've heard that. Yeah, but your own company can't see it, which is clever that LinkedIn's able to yeah. do that. Yeah, LinkedIn don't guarantee like complete fallibility with that. Um, mm-hmm. They say that there is a risk that someone from your company might see it. But, you know, I'm pretty confident that at 99.9% of the time, Recruiters at your own company won't be able to see it. Um, it's just that I think the danger that LinkedIn are talking about is that there, there is a very, very vanishingly small chance that a recruiter at your own company might see that you're open to work with that recruiter-only notification. But I, I think it's so negligible that it is worth the risk for most people. So that is the first type of open to work is the recruiter-only um, notification. And then there is the green banner that is visible to everybody on LinkedIn. Both of these functionalities were built in response to all of the initial wave of layoffs in in 2020. That's when they first went live. Mm. And I'm going to give you a few different data points here. So going back to my original point about the algorithm serving up uh, subsets of candidates to recruiters doing broad searches, when I talked about Um, the subset of candidates that are more likely to respond. If you're using either of those open to work functionalities, you will be put in that tranche, in that subset of candidates. And so a recruiter is more likely to reach out to you because you have indicated that you're open to work. And again, recruiters are trying to increase their the, re- the response rate that they get from their in-mails. So mm-hmm. there is a direct correlation between using that functionality and what it's doing for the algorithm. And now let me give you some site-wide data. And again, this is direct from the LinkedIn product managers that built the feature. Yeah. Users that use the recruiter notification typically see an uplift of 40% of in-mails from recruiters. 40% uplift and recruiters reaching out to them. Then for the green banner, the average user using the green banner sees a 20% uplift in messages, not just from recruiters, but uh, from users across the platform. And for most people looking for work, you want to use both because of course, you want to see a significant uplift in recruiter outreach, that 40%. But for most job seekers, you also want to get messages from non-recruiters across the platform, that 20% uplift, because that's still broadening your digital footprint and it's still connecting you with opportunity. And so I can see no reason why you wouldn't use those features because they make you more discoverable and the data shows you get significantly more outreach from both recruiters and from other users across the platform. They were expressly built to help people find work, and that is exactly what they're doing. Well, so let me let me play devil's advocate uh, because this is such a controversial issue. Uh, you know, one of the things you hear folks say is that there is a negative stigma 
about people who are not working and who aren't currently working, that there are recruiters out there that may think of them as lesser candidates than somebody who is working, but just happens to be open to work. So, you know, this thought of, you know, that's why you don't put the green banner on is because you don't want to spotlight the fact that you're between work. Unfair to be absolutely certain for sure. But is is it a consideration people need to consider? Absolutely not. The only people I have seen, and remember, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. Yeah. The only people I have seen saying that type of stuff are the quote unquote career coaches, mm. the vast majority of whom have never worked either side of the desk in recruiting. Let me be clear. Yeah. Um, and they're trying to sell you something. They're trying to sell one of their courses. They're trying to sell their resume, resume services. And so in order to do that, they create this fear. And that's what it is. It's fear-mongering. Hmm. No recruiter will, will ever say that. Recruiters love the feature because it helps us find people that are more likely to respond to us. And, and we know that folks that are not currently working it means they can probably start working very quickly. One of the core metrics that we are measured on internally is how quickly we're able to fill our positions. And so folks that are not working right now, yeah. um, we can move them through the process much quicker. And with the significant number of layoffs that have happened since the pandemic, you know, I think folks forget that recruiters are part of the HR function. So we know how layoffs work. And we know that a, a vast majority of the time, it's not even connected to performance. You know, entire functions are eliminated. Mm. It's just the reality of corporate America. So there is no stigma to have been involved in the layoff and being open to work. The only people that are creating that stigma are unscrupulous career coaches that are trying to sell something. Yeah. And I'll tell you, hey, I absolutely appreciate your passion for that side of the argument, and I'm thrilled to hear it. I'll go on record because anyone who goes and, and listens to some of my stuff, I have said to folks, don't do that. And I, I am a career coach. I might fit you know, the description of what you're talking about. Never meant in malice, but I have had worries for folks with that. But it, it's very refreshing to hear someone with your recruiting experience so passionately saying, this is not happening. They are not putting you in that box. And, you know, I absolutely have some experience in the the recruiting world, but it, it it's not near what I've seen in folks like yourself and the Amy Millers of the world and whatnot. So I, it's a good thing. I'm very glad you know we're having this conversation on the show and folks are hearing that perspective because you're right. There are folks out there who are, uh, who are putting a spotlight on that and and maybe shouldn't. And it gives me some things to think about for sure. Well, Look, hey, when, when, yeah, when we know, like like Oprah taught us. When we, when we know better, we do better, right? Exactly. Good old Oprah. Well, hey, you know, as we get towards the end, James, I always love, uh, you know, for my guests to be, you know, get, be a little vulnerable and maybe share a little bit about their personal journey. And I think in your case, too, there's so much people can learn, uh, particularly in this LinkedIn world, uh, from your story. Because, again, you've you've definitely built an audience and you've built respect as a voice in the place where you are. But I'm sure, again, it wasn't the easiest journey in the world and you had to have some resiliency. So I'm wondering if, you know, as we kind of start wrapping up, can you share a, a, just a little bit about just your process a little bit more than what you've, you've kind of gone into and, and things that might lead to some good advice for folks? 
Sure, I'm, I'm to totally happy to. Uh, so I think the most important thing to say is that I myself was, was laid off um, mm -hmm. earlier this year. And right after I got the news that my function was being eliminated, um, my partner and I were in a really bad car wreck in mm -hmm. Los Angeles and like really bad. We were cut out of our vehicle and oh, helicoptered from Malibu to UCLA, Ronald Reagan. Uh, and we were in the hospital for quite a lot of time while we recovered. And then we had a very long uh, recovery when we got back to Northern California. I live in mm -hmm. San Francisco most of the time. Um, and so it was the one-two punch of being laid off uh, and then being in this really bad car wreck. But also it was a hugely cathartic and clarifying experience in that after spending a long time in corporate America, I had started to feel quite stifled in that, you know, what we were able to say on LinkedIn was very closely monitored mm. and scripted. And so to no longer be in that environment felt very freeing. First of all, I felt like I was able to reclaim my voice. And I was, because I was recovering from this very traumatic injury, injuries, yeah. um, I was spending more time on LinkedIn and I was seeing that there was a lot of erroneous advice. Uh, and I, that's part of the, part of my impetus to start posting was to correct some of this misinformation that I was seeing. Uh, but also I was still processing the trauma of corporate America and the trauma of the car accident in real time. And I think that combination of vulnerability and transparency helped build my audience, but then also speaking from a position of authority on how the hiring process worked. And so it was kind of a perfect storm of things in my personal life that led me to stop posting on LinkedIn. And then very, very quickly, I started to get traction. And, you know, within six months, I'd reached 5 million people. Mm. And then that in turn led to getting my weekly column with Forbes. And there's something about traditional media that's, I, I think it just gives a layer of authority to the type of stuff that I'm now able to, to put out there in terms of careers and leadership. So it's been a really interesting journey. I tell you, and first of all, let me say, I'm so glad to hear you found your way through that tough car accident, you and your, your partner as well. I'm assuming you're both doing much better now, I'm hoping. Yeah, we, it, it, it was a rough road, but you know, we're, yeah. yeah, it could have been a lot worse. And James, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's a special thing. I think when people take the, the tough things that happened to them in their life and instead of retreating inward and, and getting overcome by this why me mentality they instead point outward and and pay it forward and and use it as a way to help and be a a sense of support for others and i just think that's great james i'm so i'm i'm, I'm inspired by how you've you've taken those things and and turned it into something that is i'm sure helping a lot of people well i always say Things don't happen to you, they happen for you. Mm. And if you can frame 
your experiences like that, it helps you, in my view, react to them and get past them and learn the lesson in whatever the bad thing was. Bad things happen to all of us, uh, but it's how we, how we react to that that then, I think, determines what happens next. Well, I tell you what, we've learned a lot of good things about LinkedIn today, but man, if, if the audience just takes that last little piece away, you're going to get a lot of value from it. That is so well said, James. So I appreciate that. Well, hey, thank you again for coming and spending time with us today. So let me just ask one last thing uh, for you. Uh, wh where are you going from here? What uh, What's next for James Hudson? You know, honestly, I, I don't know. I, I am fortunate that I have what I'm calling my fallow period whilst I uh -huh. figure out what's next. I'm enjoying being somewhat of a digital nomad doing this content creation whilst I figure out whether I go to a startup or whether I go back to corporate America, I honestly don't know, but I'm maybe I've been living in California too long, but I always believe the universe has a plan. It's taken care of me so far. And so I'm excited to see what's next, but I don't know what the answer to that is. Well, I, I look forward to seeing the good things that are coming from you. I certainly am one of your followers on LinkedIn, and I, uh, I truly uh, am learning a lot from the things you're putting out there. So thank you for that. And thank you for coming on to the show and sharing more about that insight. And again, as a reminder for the listeners, we will absolutely be uh, sharing uh, that article and, and sharing uh, you know, James's LinkedIn information. So I encourage you to follow. Thanks again, James. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. So what did you take away from our conversation today and how will it influence how you interact with LinkedIn going forward? You know, I hope you're more aware of how important it is to get the right skills into your profile and to make great use of the 50 skills LinkedIn allows you to use. When it comes to improving your discoverability, well, I hope you learned you can make LinkedIn's algorithm work for you by making sure you're at least responding to outreach from recruiters, even if it's just a say no thank you. And make sure you're following the companies that interest you and liking and sharing and commenting on their content. When it comes to your content, make sure to show some endurance by hanging in there and consistently posting two to three times a week. If you need more ideas, make sure to follow James or reach out to us on revealedtalent.com. We'd love to be a career advocate for you.